Yeah, my interest, my passion for a long time has been ocean policy, you know, the rules of the game that governments make for how people use the oceans and interact with them, how we can protect them. And I'm particularly interested in in ocean policy to reduce poverty, ocean policy to generate more jobs and food throughout the world, but particularly for communities that, that have fewer options. What kind of, you know, quote, bad things happen and where do they tend to happen, you know, where no one is in control or do they happen in certain uh, bailiwicks of certain governments, which makes it harder to tell them don't do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think of the bad things in the ocean as under two big headings. And I got this from um, Jeremy Jackson, a pretty famous marine ecologist, who said it kind of boils down to people taking out too much good stuff from the ocean and putting too much bad stuff in. Increased stress is linked with teeth grinding and clenching, which causes poor sleep, jaw pain, and headaches. Did you know that one in every four adults grind or clench their teeth while they're sleeping? A Remy Custom Night Guard can protect your teeth from grinding and clenching while saving you hundreds of dollars compared to getting one at the dental office. Use code GUARD20 for 20% off your order. Visit shopremy.com now. S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have John Vernon. He's the director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Program at Duke University. Uh, we're going to talk about marine conservation and uh, how humans use the oceans and work with the oceans. So, John, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, if you would tell me about your background. How did you come to work on, uh, you know, maritime policy? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like many people, a bit of a zigzag, but yeah, my interest, my passion for a long time has been 
ocean policy, you know, the rules of the game that governments make for how people use the oceans and interact with them, how we can protect them. And I'm particularly interested in, in ocean policy to reduce poverty, ocean policy to generate more jobs and food throughout the world, but particularly for communities that, that have fewer options. And the way I got into that, I was a political science major. I did a thesis on Nigerian debt dependency, was fascinated by just the disparity in wealth and income around the world. And it just, it seems so stark to me and what to do about that and, and levels of poverty. But then I just also love the ocean. And I went to Duke's Marine Lab for a summer after I graduated and they sort of said, hey, you can combine these two things. There are lots of jobs in policy management, how people use the oceans to, that can help uh, reduce poverty. And that kind of, that did it for me. That hooked me. And I went back to grad school and then, uh, Went into practicing that, worked for 12 years at the World Bank, advising governments on policies to, for the oceans and particularly for fisheries where, you know. When that, you said uh, use the ocean, I guess, work with the ocean in order to alleviate poverty, what does that mean? Yeah, so for me, I mean, it, it means essentially the oceans can provide more food, more fish, more seafood, provide more jobs for people if we have typically smarter rules of the game. If it's a free-for-all and you overfish, you clear out all the fish stocks, it's great for a little while, but then it goes, it's a boom and then it's a bust. And communities struggle, people have are out of jobs, out of there's less food. And you can, you know, pick any other a lot of other different uses of the oceans and and conflicts that occur there because we're overusing, overexploiting, polluting the oceans. And so it creates problems for, for so many of the benefits we enjoy from them. So getting good rules of the game, good policies, good laws for this crowded space on the planet is, that we, uh, we all use and share can create more jobs and more food for people. And particularly in places that, that maybe don't have as many other options where you need them the most. So that's, for me, yeah. it's often been through the tropics around the equator and places like that i don't know if this is right again because i'm a lay person but for each country i thought uh, like 12 miles offshore is international waters but i just learned like in the u.s i guess three miles offshore is state and then 12, i don't know how many miles is federal and then i don't know what's international but i guess the whole point is is it difficult because the ocean is like a tragedy in the commons type thing yeah, it's, I mean, the oceans is kind of the classic commons and, and then what, what happens when something is kind of used by all, but really taken control by none or, and that's where you had the United Nations Law of the Sea Treaty in the early 80s sort of set as called by a lot of people like the Constitution for the Sea. And that sort of said, Hey, here's who can make the rules for the oceans. And what it said is that out to 200 nautical miles from the coast, Countries can make the rules, at least, you know, you may not have absolute sovereignty over everything. You still have to let ships pass through and, and flights overhead. But in terms of things like fish stocks or minerals or oil or gas, you've got sovereign rights to, to those and uh, to the rules of the game for those. And so that's about a third of the ocean that is now regulated by the countries, by the coastal states nearby those waters. But that also means there's about two-thirds of the ocean that we call kind of areas beyond any national jurisdiction, or like you think of like the high seas, so to speak. And that's the current discussion at the UN right now is, hey, can we, do we need a new treaty? And they're working on one 
the high seas for these two thirds of the, the ocean that's not under the control or jurisdiction of governments and, and all the biodiversity, the plants, animals, things that are out in those areas. Well, what kind of, you know, quote unquote, bad things happen and where do they tend to happen? You know, where no one is in control or do they happen in certain uh, bailiwicks of certain governments, which makes it harder to tell them don't do that? Yeah, I mean, I, cl- I kind of think of the bad things in the ocean as under two big headings. And I got this from um, Jeremy Jackson, pretty a famous marine ecologist, who said it kind of boils down to people taking out too much good stuff from the ocean and putting too much bad stuff in. And so the bad things happening, you know, overfishing, extracting minerals, other resources, taking too much out of the ocean that disturbs the environment, the ecosystems, or compromises our ability to get these things in the future. And then we put a lot of bad stuff in, a lot of sewage, fertilizer runoff into the rivers and coasts that creates algal blooms and 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 takes up too much of the oxygen in the waters, creates these dead zones in the ocean, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions that are causing both ocean warming and they're also causing the oceans to acidify in some places, Um, oil spills, um, you know, on and on. So I think of it as those two problems and those really happen really closely to the coast in a lot of cases because, you know, that's where people are the most and have been the most so that one third of the ocean that's under government's control is where a lot of bad things have been happening. And governments have really been wrestling to get those areas under control. But now we're in this new age where, you know, technology is allowing us to push farther and farther into the oceans. And whether it's, you know, to go farther out for fish or to go out and do deep sea mining for minerals that we need maybe for batteries, for electric vehicles or Maybe we're going to be prospecting for new organisms and new drugs and pharmaceuticals out there. You name it. That's where the concern is now is that, hey, the, there's, these areas aren't inaccessible. We can get there. The ocean is, is a frontier that we're you know, exploring and, and using more and more with new technologies. And if we just leave it as a free-for-all out there, we're going to have problems that we know we've had in the coastal waters and in the offshore. So that's why there's, there's talk at the UN now about this new treaty for all the, for the biodiversity in those areas beyond government jurisdiction right now. Yeah. I've heard that there's dead zones that are anoxic or hypoxic. And mm-hmm. there's also, I guess the various garbage patches or gyres um, are those located within any particular government's jurisdiction. And, you know, are, are those governments angry and, saying it's unfair or, you know, what, what's the happening around those things? Dead zones often are uh, because a lot of times they're linked to runoff along the coasts and in the rivers. So, for example, there's in the U.S., there's always been a, a it's growing big dead zone that occurs sometimes uh, along uh, at the mouth of the Mississippi and the in the in the Gulf. Um, but also. With things like plastics runoff, a lot of that's coming to the oceans via rivers as well as coastal runoff. But um, it's the, the plastic problem is it, it is governments are, you know, somewhat upset and angry about where that's happening. I think in some places, particularly if you're island states and you're saying, hey, this isn't coming from us. But um, a lot of these dead zones are, are happening within government's own waters. It's their own coastal uh, coastal runoff, their own ag industry. So is your work uh, crafting policy or is it more research? 
So my work is research to help people craft better policies. So um, a lot of what I'm working on right now with colleagues, work with uh, Professor Javier Basurto at the Marine Lab, who's a governance expert, and work with colleagues at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, which is the UN agency charged with uh, helping to reduce hunger, is on really understanding where world's fishing communities are, what we think of as artisanal and small-scale fisheries around the world. They're the, the ocean's single largest employer, huge source of food and nutrition uh, for communities around the world. Understanding you know, where these small-scale fisheries are, the, these big ocean users around the world, understanding the threats that they face putting together the evidence for governments as to why they really need to pay attention to these small scale fisheries, why they need to worry about these other threats they're facing, other uses and conflicts in the ocean. And yeah, trying to build the evidence base that uh, these, these fishing communities, these artisanal fisheries, small scale fisheries are, you know, really big contributors to society around the world and uh, need the attention of governments. Remy Night Guards are designed for comfort. Remy sends you an at-home impression kit and has a team of in-house dental professionals to make you custom, comfortable night guards that you'll forget you're wearing, all for 80% less than the cost at the dental office. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. Remember, that's S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. So what are, um, you mentioned an upcoming, uh, I guess, a summit where they're going to, I mean, who, who is running this? Who is, you mentioned this earlier, who is in charge of oceanic policy? Is it all nations, certain nations? And what's that called? Uh, yeah, there's not like a global ocean agency or one or, you know, world ocean organization that, that runs it all. So you have different, different agencies working at, on different things. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization works with UN member states on fisheries policy amongst other things. So that's one aspect of, of, you know, in terms of fishing, in terms of this treaty, I mentioned this for biodiversity in the ocean, in the areas beyond national jurisdiction, that is occurring in conjunction with the UN general assembly. So the UN general assembly, you know, names a committee to lead negotiations amongst the countries, but it's, it's all nations of the world coming together to see, are we going to put together a new treaty for this, you know, for this area of the ocean that's somewhat ungoverned, uncontrolled right now. There's also a new, um, there's negotiations starting on a plastics treaty. And that's again, through the United Nations Environment Assembly, similar to the UN General Assembly. And um, those, it's governments coming together to see, can they agree on, on a treaty that would bind them all to, to address plastic pollution. But that's, it's pretty early days on that one. Well, of the various players, is everyone on board or are there certain players that are not? The, com- the countries and the governments have agreed to negotiate this. So process has started. I'm not sure the dynamics yet, you know, who's taking what position on these, who's dragging their feet, who's really pushing it. I know on a lot of these treaties, whether it's the treaty for the high seas, the areas beyond national jurisdiction, or it's a plastics treaty. Really, the island states are often the ones that band together and really push for this because, you know, the in collectively in total, they're kind of a powerful block, you know, 40 ish, 50, however many uh, small island states. 
but they have they call themselves sort of large ocean states they control large chunks of the ocean and for them uh, it's an integral part of their economy their culture and they will be really driving the other countries of the world to to negotiate conservation treaties or ocean protection treaties that are you know stricter maybe than than others might have pushed for well what are some of the major points that are up for uh consideration in this next round so for the the plastics treaty i mean it's it's just starting but it, i think of it as analogous to like you know negotiations on climate change and the paris agreement so if there's worry that there's way too much plastic going into the environment, polluting the environment, ending up in rivers and ultimately in the oceans, then uh, the countries are, hey, are we all going to set a binding target that we agree to abide by on reducing plastic pollution? Are we all going to agree on how we monitor and count that? Are we actually going to start banning plastic products of certain types? Or is this going to be, hey, we all agree to start monitoring together how plastic is made, how it's disposed of? Do we agree that we're all going to report to each other and hope it's peer pressure? Those are some of the things that people are are hashing out right now to see, like, what what type of treaty this is going to take shape? How How is the world collectively going to respond to plastic pollution in the ocean? Well, what are some early indicators or are there particular ideas that are being advanced that you're considering or... What stage is it at? Uh, so the yeah, I I haven't taken part in the latest discussions. I mean, the ideas are that are going forward is you know do we have do we have a target for total volume of plastic waste that we think is actually getting into the environment and into the oceans? Do we actually start capping plastic production? Or do we have like recycling targets? Do we think we can ever be there can ever be enough recycling to to get us to to reduce plastic pollution? These are some of the things that are that are on the table right now. What role do big companies play? Do you should should governments make companies responsible who make the plastic responsible for disposing of it? And this idea of a circular economy that you close the loop and reuse plastic and, and these types of products when they're made. Those are all some of the discussions that are happening and getting started right now. I'm not, it, it's early to say, at least to my understanding, how those are taking shape. But these are some of the things I think that the negotiators uh, are, are just starting to put on the table. Uh, it's going to be, these international treaties are a process of years and in some cases decades. I hope not decades here, but it's definitely years. Where are we at in the process? Is there a fixed deadline where it's like, all right, all submissions are going to be considered on this date? Or what's, they, what's the plan? They just kicked it off in February of 2022. So the United Nations Environment Assembly then, which is the kind of like the environment version of the General Assembly, they agreed to start negotiations on a treaty. So it, it just started in February of this year. I've heard, understand that there's a target to conclude the negotiations by the end of 2024, you know, but we'll see on that. That, that might be, that might be optimistic, but that's at least what I've understood is the plan. It started in February and end of 2024 is when they're, the target is to conclude negotiations on the plastics treaty. Is there anything that can be done to accelerate it or to do that might lead to some bad policy? Does it, does it have to take a long time by definition? No, it doesn't have to. It's just, 
you know, imagine, as you said, there's not any one agency that can make everybody agree on this. It's a, it's a process of getting all the nations of the world and, and particularly the biggest polluters to agree. And the process is the time it takes to get them on board. And that's why when it comes to the international realm, it, it just takes this long because you're trying to get consensus amongst so many people. The law of the sea treaty, the constitution of the sea, I mean, that's been called probably one of the biggest revolutions in the way that we use the oceans and humanity interacts with the oceans in the 20th century. But that took 30 years to hammer out. I hope, you know, I don't think we're talking about that time frame. I hope not with the plastics treaty, but these have it's taken some time to get consensus on on problems that are so big that span the whole planet. So um, when people talk about the condition of the oceans right now, what are some of the things that uh, that you're aware of that would, would give listeners an idea of the condition of the ocean and how things are progressing, how good they are, how bad they are, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, the the, the big challenges I think uh, that, that we face in the, in the oceans right now that governments have agreed on to try to tackle, but that, that we're facing – one of the oldest is still a problem, overfishing. You know, of the fish stocks that we can measure and count, and it's not so easy to count them. There's the old joke that, you know, counting fish underwater is like uh, counting trees, except the fish move and you can't see them. So, you know, we, there are a lot of fish stocks we haven't measured. But those that, that we've counted and we've measured, about a third are considered overfished. And that number's held steady for a while. But there are a lot of others that are you know, can't take any more pressure uh, sustainably. That doesn't mean they're being overfished, but it just means we can't, they can't be fished more. So there's, you know, we, we still have a handle to get on this old problem of overfishing. We haven't yet. There's, we know how to do it. There's some good successes and models out there, but those are typically in um, wealthier, more temperate water countries. And uh, a lot of the overfishing, at least we think, and pressure right now on, from fishing is taking place throughout the tropics in lower income countries and often by foreign fleets. And so getting a handle on that is still remains a big problem and big challenge in the ocean. I would say, secondly, you know, out of three or four, we have and are still transforming coastal environments, coastal ecosystems. For 50 plus years, humanity has been increasingly migrating to the sea. Most of our big cities, our mega cities are on the coast. We've been transforming coastal ecosystems that we all need and depend on, both for for to support plants and animals, but to protect us from storms that are getting worse under climate change. Mangroves, wetlands, seagrasses, coral reefs, uh, oyster beds. I mean, a whole host of, of kind of natural coastal ecosystems have been transformed over the last 50 years. There's exciting restoration science underway. For to to restore many of those, but that's a that's something that needs to happen at scale because through lots of sort of little transformations, you build a dock here, a jetty here, you build a seawall there. You know, you could say that humanity's kind of progressively armored and geoengineered our coastlines. So that's a second big problem I would put. Third, yeah, and excess nutrient pollution, the dead zones that we talked about, whether it's from sewage going directly into the ocean or fertilizer runoff from farms and the rivers and eventually the ocean, 
we're still putting too, a lot of loading nitrogen, phosphorus, extra nutrients into the coastal waters in places that are, as you mentioned, causing situations of hypoxia, anoxia, and, and dead zones. That's the third one. Fourth one, we've talked about you know the, the plastic problem the estimates of, of massive volumes uh, you know, on the order of 11, 12 million tons per year of plastic entering the, the oceans is the fourth one. And then finally, we have all of the problems and just fundamental transformations of the ocean environment occurring because of excess greenhouse gases, because of emission human-driven emissions of, of greenhouse gases that are both causing the ocean to warm and are causing it to acidify and, and sea levels to rise. So those are the five those are the five big problems that I think of that I see governments most frequently trying to do something about. That's where we're increasingly seeing young people try to innovate and come up with new technologies as well, new business models, you, you name it, to, to try to face some of these big problems in the oceans that, you know, affect a lot of people's lives, whether you're on the coast or not. Um, I've spoken to a few people that are, I guess, trying to do some farming, let's say of oysters and various shellfish and fish farms and all that. Do those at all help, let's say, the loss of fish populations? Can they help make areas sustainable in terms of fishing or... Are they just a drop in the bucket of what's needed? I think it's all helpful and and contributes. I'm you know certainly not an expert in the area, but from, I understand from those that are that oyster farming, oyster aquaculture just has so many benefits. I mean, as you it improves the water quality. Uh, they're filtering the the water and it helps reduce pollution. Oysters are are food as well and and jobs. Oyster beds can can help protect coasts as well. It's to some extent as natural defenses. So I've heard a lot of interest from people in increasing exactly that oyster farming, oyster aquaculture, just because you get so many different benefits from it. Uh, what about the uh, the gyres, you know, the garbage patches? Are they just ugly or are they seriously affecting, you know, our ability to obtain fish from the ocean? Are they affecting the ocean's health according to people that are studying them? Yeah, so the gyres, and I, I haven't been out to them myself, but my understanding is it's, yes, there's, you know, there's debris, trash there on the surface, but it's not just this this sort of massive clutter of plastic and trash on the ocean surface. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of it in various stages at various depths underneath, and it's, it's sinking to some extent. But it's it's not just in the gyres. There's yes, there are these massive concentrations of plastic and debris by virtue of the currents, but there's increasing evidence and research showing, you know, plastic in different forms throughout the ocean. And it's a real, you know, we're still trying to understand how this is changing ocean wildlife, ocean animals, flora, fauna. Certainly it's a threat to a number of different species, whether it be seabirds or others that have, that have struggled with either being, you know, choked in, in plastic or ingesting, eating it, ingesting it. But it's, it's just, it, it's become pervasive throughout the ocean ecosystems. And so these gyres are kind of the most maybe visible or, or symbols of it, but the volumes of plastic waste that we think are going into the oceans 
and that researchers are finding evidence in different species and things there's is goes beyond just those those spaces and those gyres and so it's a real concern for how this is changing the animals and species that live in in the ocean well very good john where's a place to find out more about uh, your work and the upcoming um, summit you know to discuss all these issues yeah, thanks. I there's a um I have a webpage on the the Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment and Sustainability that shows kind of the main things that that I'm working on, which as I've mentioned mostly is the study we call um Illuminating Hidden Harvests, which is all about these small-scale fisheries throughout the world and the, how important they are to society. And that is there's a webpage with that at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, World Fish Center as well as Duke, but um yeah, all these things are that I'm working on are are pointed through the page on the Nicholas Institute site. Well, very good, John. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Before you go, make sure to protect your smile from teeth grinding and clenching with a Remy Custom Night Guard. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.